The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. This is episode number two, and our special guest is a legendary songwriter in the world of country music, Mr. Dean Dillon. He's one of my absolute favorite songwriters, and I'm going to tell you a little story. My friend Wesley Cook called me, and it was after the CMA Awards. This was a couple years ago. And he told me about this duet that he saw, and it was Chris Stapleton and Justin Timberlake doing Tennessee Whiskey. And at the time, I thought, what would Justin Timberlake be doing singing Tennessee Whiskey? I wasn't familiar with Chris Stapleton at the time, and... I thought, that can't be the Dean Dillon song. And, as you know, as it turned out, it was the Dean Dillon song. Dean Dillon has just been somebody that I've wanted to interview for a very long time. I've been a fan of his. He's written some incredible songs. He's written stuff that's been recorded by George Strait, Kenny Chesney, Toby Keith. I want to say that every single George Strait album, except for one, has at least one Dean Dillon song. He wrote, of course, the song, as we mentioned, Tennessee Whiskey, which has become like a standard in the world of country music. George Jones recorded it. David Allen Coe recorded it. And, of course, as we mentioned now, Chris Stapleton. Some of the other songs he wrote for Kenny Chesney, a great song, uh, a lot of things different which we're going to talk about shortly. For George Strait, Oceanfront Property, The Chair, we could go on and on. Dean Dillon is somebody who has been getting his due lately. There's this new documentary. It's called Tennessee Whiskey, The Dean Dillon Story. I just watched it not too long ago. It's got George Strait in it, Kenny Chesney, Toby Keith. It has the famed record producer Buddy Cannon, Kix Brooks from... Brooks and Dunn, Pam Tillis, there's a lot of people. And they tell the story of this songwriter, Dean Dillon, who you're going to be meeting shortly. And it's one of these stories. It's very, very inspiring. It has its share of hardship, a lot of perseverance. You get to know through this documentary who the man is that wrote these songs that the world knows. And I don't think you even have to be a country music fan to appreciate this. It's directed by Cole Clausen. I watched mine on Amazon, and I very much enjoyed it. Very interesting. Well, with no further ado, let's get to the interview. Here is Dean Dillon and I, and I hope you enjoy. Everyone out there, I want to just tell a little bit about who our guest is. We're joined by one of my absolute favorite songwriters of all time. His name is Mr. Dean Dillon. He's written songs from for some of the great artists of our time. I've wanted to interview you for a long time, so this is a real thrill to have you here. I want to kind of go back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was it like? Well, we were dirt poor, but we didn't know it because everybody else was too. You know, is a my grandfather was a deep mine coal miner, and and uh, my grandmother worked in the 
in a town in East Tennessee called Oak Ridge, which was this was a secret city, so to speak, back in the day. It was a gated city, and and then my mother was a waitress in a truck stop there. So we grew up in a pretty hard scrabble life, and then uh, moved to Michigan, and when I was five years old. Stayed there for about five years and then moved back to Tennessee. What would you say was the happiest time from your childhood? Oh, hell, that's easy. Fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I was fishing from the time, you know, I was big enough to walk almost. You know, people can't believe it today, but it, you know, when we were three and four years old, we'd walk by ourselves up to a fishing pond. I mean, my uncle, who was actually a year younger than I was, and uh, throw a cane pole in the water and fish. Back in those days, there wasn't any, you know, there weren't any crazed monsters out there to get you, and we had enough common sense to be careful of the water. Do you still like to fish? I do. I love freshwater fishing. Go to Canada every once in a while, do a lot of saltwater fishing in the, in the, the Caribbean and, and, uh, still love it nothing like catching that next big one what about on the other side what would you say the toughest time was when you were growing up i think the toughest time was when uh we moved to to michigan like i said up until that point you had to have to understand my grandparents had raised me up until that point my mom had gone north to to work money and work and send money back home. But my grandparents raised me, so when she remarried and moved back north, and then, uh, you know, they took me away from really the only parents I'd had at that point, which was kind of puzzling to me. And then when we moved back to Tennessee, then they left me up in Virginia with my stepdad's mother, whom I'd never met before. And I couldn't figure it, really figure out who I belonged to at that point. And, and that's where I gravitated really toward the guitar and music and it became my solace and my comfort and you know just dove head first into that were there particular musicians or bands that you liked the most you know when i was 14 i won this town contest and, and so I, I did a tv show on friday nights all through my high school years which provided me with enough money to go do pretty much what I wanted to do. And I used to go to the Civic Auditorium in Knoxville and see all these great bands, Roger Daltrey and the Who, Edgar Winters, Carlos Santana. Yet, I had a... My grounding was in country music. I was just an avid fan, and my hero was Merle Haggard. But I wanted to go and explore different kinds of music, and I went one weekend and heard James Taylor and Carol King in concert and that pretty pretty much changed me as far as melodies were concerned. I fell in love with Carol King melodies and James Taylor melodies. And I remember thinking, man, if I can just take that type of melody and and infuse that into these lyric driven Merle Haggard songs, then you come up with songs like Marina Del Rey and The Chair. You know, they're just a 
that's truly where those songs came from was that that influence and a lot of my stuff was you know melodically was was uh influenced by them do you think it'd be possible to i guess determine what is more important to you as a as a songwriter is it more important to have a great melody or more important to have great lyrics well it's more important to me to have both <laughs> you can you can't have one without the other to make a great song. You really can't. I mean, if there's going to be a weakness, you know, then it's not going to be great. You got to have both to have greatness. And that was taught to me by Hank Cochran. You know, here's a guy who wrote Make the World Go Away. You know, I wrote The Chair and, and Oceanfront and Set him up, Joe. Is it raining at your house? Homecoming 63. You know, those kind of songs. But it was, he always implored me, you know, to think outside the box when it came to melodies when we were writing. You know, the lyric end of it, he knew I had down as much as, you know, he had taught me. And, you know, anybody will tell you that 99.9% of the time they look at me and go, okay, what's well, the melody? Because it's, most of the time it's something different than what you'd expect. That's what I look for, the difference in melodies. Would you say that Hank Cochran is the person who taught you the most songwriter to songwriter? You know, I had some great teachers before him, Kent Robbins was one of my teachers, and John Swears was another one of my teachers. But the one that did have the most impact was Hank. Because when Hank and I would write, he would just always explain to me why we were, why we wrote this line this way and why we said what we said when we said it. You know, there was a, there was a, Hank Cochran blueprint, so to speak, to follow. And it was a successful one. And you can't argue with success. How would you describe Hank Cochran as a person? <laughs> Funny, witty, loved to have a good time, had a serious side, a bit chaotic, which was about how I'd describe myself at the time, too, you know. So we were like two peas in a pod. Hank was like a father to me. You know, he became a father to me. We spent a lot of years on a boat in the Caribbean called The Legend, and I had the utmost respect for him. And he taught me about a lot about living and life and love and laughter, and he just taught me a lot about everything. That time in the Caribbean is, it's explored in the documentary about you and about your songs and your life. I just watched it. I gotta say, I loved it. It's called Tennessee well, Whiskey. Right. Yep. The Dean Dillon story. What do you think of the documentary? Actually, I love it. I think it's pretty, pretty dead on. It's fact based. I think you get the sense of where songwriters come from coming from when they write what they write, you know, and it also shows that I think everybody thinks that a songwriter 
goes in this room, and they're in there forever how long, and they come out magically with this song. <laughs> That's just not the way it really is. There's a lot goes on behind those closed doors in creating a song. I think the reason Hank and I said had such great success together is Oftentimes today, when you walk in a room in Nashville, or it's been this way for a long time in Nashville, you know, you'll walk in with a total stranger, somebody you've never met. And in a span of three and a half to four hours, walk out with a song. I think the success that Hank and I had was due to the fact that we actually spent 24-hour days together, you know, and got to know each other and, and love each other the way we did and appreciated each other, and it made it really really easy it set a relaxing tone to go about our business he was as avid and as as fervent about writing songs as i was albeit he was you know some 20 years older than i was that's what it took you know to do what we did when you're going to write songs with somebody what is it you look for in the other person well, that's what I'm saying, man. You're not really looking at the other person as much as you're looking at the idea. You don't really know this other person that well a lot of times. More often than not, it's the first time you've ever wrote with them. It's just uh, you tend to focus more on the, on the task at hand than you do the other person. And I think a lot of times it's hard to get soulful with something when when it's done that way because you don't know this person that well would you say that pain or joy is a greater well of inspiration for you as a writer well i can tell you right now pain's been a a far greater asset in my world than joy has you know if you look up on a wall and look at the awards i've had as far as song a lot of them are pretty damn sad (laughs) yeah you know, so I'd say that'd have to be it. Would you say that writing songs is almost kind of like a therapeutic thing? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it can be about what happened to you last night, last week, last month, this morning. You know, what happened to your friends, whatever. But, yeah, it's pretty much one big therapy session with a guitar and lyrics. When you're somewhere, like, for example, you're at a restaurant or you could be at a hotel lobby, and over the sound system, you start hearing a couple notes or a couple of words, and then you realize, oh, this is one of my songs. To this day, is that something, do do your ears perk up when you hear one of your own songs? You know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever really been that way as far as I've never really been that way i mean it's just i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but when i write something a lot of times you know i move on from it to the next and i'm always looking for the next one after that it's not what i've done in the past it's what i'm going to do in the future Hmm. you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's not pleasing to hear your stuff on radio or something like that but When I do hear something on the radio, I'm probably sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to write next? (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily, what is that song playing on the radio? 
Well, what about the very first time that happened? Oh, the first time I heard one of my songs on the radio, I pulled over and cried. Because I, you know, thinking that I'd actually written something good enough to get on the radio. Because I felt that was a a huge achievement to be able to do that. You know, it's a song called Lying in Love with You. And, and uh, I remember exactly where I was. I was driving under the overpass at Fessler's Lane on I-40, just outside Nashville, when Lying in Love with You came on the radio. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people in this documentary Tennessee Whiskey, and they talk about what your songs mean to them and also about just what the, like, for example, George Strait, he talks about how long you all have known each other and how much work you've accomplished together. This is probably a difficult question, but what would you say the biggest compliment you've ever gotten? Not just from somebody known, just all in all. You know, just having people walk up to you and say, you know what? I danced my first dance with my husband to that song or we played that song at our wedding or on the back side of that is we played this song at my father's funeral or, or people walk up and say, you know, I name my children after you. I mean, it's, it's a, I don't know if you can use it, the word rewarding, but it's a, pretty profound that someone would think enough of something that you wrote to for it to become a memory in their life yeah well tell us a little bit about george Strait. how would you describe the relationship that you all have as creators together pretty darn awesome <laughs> yeah yeah we've been friends like i said since uh 1980 had a great relationship he's a great guy you know george is like me in the sense that you know he very loyal man and just as loyal as he was to me i was to him so you know whenever i wrote something that i thought was anything i always pitched it to him first you know every monday morning of every week that he ever recorded I was the guy sitting across from him at 10 o'clock in the morning playing him songs. So it's been a, you know, a great relationship. Been rewarding for both of us. And, uh, we both appreciate what each other's talents are. And, and we're great friends. One of the other recording artists and singers that's in this documentary is Kenny Chesney. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think this is just one of my favorite songs, and you wrote it with—I believe you wrote it with Bill Anderson. Uh, and I'm talking a lot of about, things different. Yeah, what a song, Magic. Tell me about that song. Well, we we had two days scheduled to write, and the first day he started telling Roger Miller stories, so we didn't get anything done. And then the second day we started at ten o'clock. By noon we had. You know, one of the worst songs known to mankind. And, and I looked at him, I said, you know, normally I'm in my truck headed to my ranch about this time, but I, I said, I can't imagine walking out of this, walking out of this room without having written something great with you. And he pulled a sheet of paper out of his briefcase 
and I read it. And it was a just lines about things that people would have done differently had they ch- had the chance to do it all over again. And that was really where the song came from. And then, you know, as Whispering does, he has that wonderful delivery. <laughs> we sit there and put it to a Dean Dillon melody, and fortunately for the two of us, we got it to Kenny, and he recorded it. What do you think of Kenny Chesney? One of the greatest guys in the world. <laughs> he's just hes just a, a great guy, man. He's just, just an all-around great guy. So caring. He's really a caring, caring person. People don't know this, but he's been flying his private jet to, to uh, the islands after this disaster, carrying medical supplies, dog food, cat food, whatever the necessities were that are needed in, in the islands in St. John and St. Thomas. He's been flying down there. You know, he started a fund for it. He loves that place down there, as do I. I've spent a lot of time in the Caribbean, but he's a great guy, man. Fun to be around. Hmm. One time I was at, I want to say this was at Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta, and I got into a conversation with one of the security guards there, this elderly black gentleman, and I said, you've gotten to meet all of the stars that come through here. Who is the nicest person that you've ever worked around, and he, he had no pause, and he said, Kenny Chesney. <laughs> so it's consistent with what you're saying. Just real respectful, you know, and, and loves everybody. You know, it, it doesn't make make any difference who you are or what you are. Kenny has respect for everybody. He just loves life and loves people and loves music. You know, a lot of times people ask songwriters what their favorite song is, and I don't ask that question anymore. But I would like to ask you this. If you had to pick a song of yours to represent what it is that you do, what song would that be? You know, I've heard that question asked of songwriters, and I always laugh because people go, what's the favorite song you ever wrote? And I've heard time and time again songwriters go, oh, man, they're all my babies. I can't really distinguish one from the other. Always. <laughs> my, rep- my reply to that is always, well, I've got some ugly damn kids. Then. <laughs> you know, because they're not all great. But I guess the top two of mine that I, I love them because I love to play them. And I love the melodies to them, and I love the lyrics of them. Is the chair, and uh, a lot of things different. But then you got stuff like Marina Del Rey, and and uh, nobody in his right mind, and and boats by Chesney. I'm alive by Kenny Chesney. They're all just wonderful songs, man. I just been that I've just been blessed to be a part of. This might be a hard question to put into words, but what do you like about country music? How it was or how it is now. <laughs> That's a good clarification. No, man, you know what? Music has to evolve. It just has to. Or it's redundant. It's the same old thing over and over and over and over. And people tire of it. Twelve, 
15 years ago, country music evolved into this rap-slash-party genre. And it got away from... It became all about a good time. You know, and anything and everything to do with a good time. Prior to that, country music was about a good time, a bad time, a great day, a bad day, losing, loving, and then it got encapsulated here about 15 years ago into just being all about a party. And it's gone on, you know, for almost 15 years now. And I can appreciate it, what the, you know, what they did. And if that's what Nashville wants to sell, I think that's great. But it's become really, really, really redundant. And so much so that, uh, you know, I don't turn the radio on because, unfortunately, the country music that I know, life wasn't one big party. You know, it had its ups and downs, and it still does. And at the the root level of country music, country music is about hardship and hard times. That's the part of it that I loved enduring to people enduring them to the hardships of life and and uh giving them hope in songs and trying to provide to them that there was a way out of all that and it just you know it's sad to me that i don't think there's really any there's not a lot of songs out there i can any come to my mind that you know, our, our life lessons or things of that nature. But it, you got to understand, country music, too, is also geared toward a whole nother audience these days. Country music used to run the gamut from 15 years old to 90. Right now, it seems like it's just zeroed in on this one age group in particular, which is, you know, 15 to 25 and I think that leaves a lot of people out yeah and I think that's I think that's why a lot of people have tuned out but you know hopefully I don't ever want it to go back traditional the way it was I want to see it evolve into something great again it just hasn't been great it's been a party yeah you know well, what artists out there do you think are kind of doing the best job of keeping it moving forward in a good way? Chris Stapleton. <laughs> Great artist. You know, I mean, that's it in a nutshell right there. I don't, uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I don't really, if I were to go to Nashville right now and you read me the top 20 artists on Billboard, I probably couldn't name you two or three because I don't feel like the number one rule I always used was don't listen to what's on the radio because you're two years behind. Because a lot of that music was cut in a year or two years before and it's just now making its way on the radio. So the only way you're ever going to 
set a precedent or be different is to stay and play your own game and be your own writer and, and do your own thing. And if you're fortunate enough that what you do sets you apart from everybody else and people love it, then then you've accomplished your mission. There's a very interesting part in the documentary. I thought this was interesting. And you were talking about the song Oceanfront Property. And you said, mm-hmm. you said I, I don't want to be known as a guy who writes funny songs. And that made me wonder. No. <laughs> well, there's, there's so many people nowadays that that's exactly what they do. But it made me wonder, mm-hmm. how do you want to be perceived? I just want to, you know, my my legacy, the one I'm leaving right now, is is about real life and real things. And that's the way I want it to be looked at. Like I said in the movie, I don't want to be known as a funny songwriter. There ain't a damn thing funny about life to me. Life's a pretty serious business when you get right down to it, you know. The song you're talking about, Oceanfront Property, I didn't want to be known as a funny songwriter. A lot of, it's just like an artist. You put out a song or an actor, you get labeled as being this person. And the next thing you know, you can't find any work because you're labeled as that kind of person. Follow me? Yeah. And I don't, you know, I didn't want to get locked into that. I wanted to be constantly evolving, always changing, searching for that next great melody and that next great lyric. And in my case, I love writing about the raw and real, you know, the hard times, the good times, but that's the deal. Speaking of the hard times and speaking of, you know, you said life is is pretty serious. There's parts in this documentary, it's really honest. You know, you talk about things like struggling with sobriety and everybody either struggles with something or they know somebody who does if anyone out there is thinking either somebody that they know needs help or they're thinking hey i need help myself what would you say to that person man there's a way out there's absolutely a way out i don't care how deep you are i don't care if you've gone to the bottom took a shovel and dubbed dug six foot deeper there's a way out there's hope you know there's all kinds of programs there's all you know the almighty himself and all it takes is a hand reaching up so someone can pull you out of that hole to get you out but there are ways out and there was for me when I was in my darkest hours I had great friends who cared about me, and they I reached my hand out, and they pulled me out of it. So don't ever give up the shit. Hmm. Ever. Don't ever give up hope. Just lift up your hand. When somebody is venturing out into whatever it is that they do, would you say that it's more important for them to be confident or more important for them to have some humility? When I got to Nashville, if you didn't have an ego, they gave you one. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, you don't have to be, you know, we might get bleeped on this. You don't have to be an, an asshole to be confident. I think confidence should come from within and be confident in yourself and in what you're trying to achieve. Believe in yourself. You know, tell yourself this is this is what I'm about. You know. Hmm. If you could tell the listeners out there about this Mountain High Music Festival, it's going to be coming up January 10th through the 13th next year, 2018. Tell them a little bit about that. We're talking about four to five hundred people at this venue. This is not a great, big, huge uh, festival. It's a very intimate, up-close and personal, shoulder-rubbing-with-the-stars festival. When our main stage acts are done at night, then at 11 o'clock, we move to another section of the hotel and and uh, have these real intimate guitar pools that last till all hours of the night. But yeah, it's a, and this year is shaping up to be the best year we've had. Toby Keith, Scotty Emmerich's coming. Jamie Johnson's bringing his band back this year. Kelly Pickers coming. Steve Hopper wrote all that old, old shredding stuff. Not a dock of the bay. Just a great, great writer, guitar player, and singer. And then, uh, Sundance Head, who won the voice last year whom I just got producing, got through producing some sides on, working in the studio with him. He's coming out, bringing his band. Tracy Bird's coming. It's going to be a heck of a weekend and a lot of fun. That's the Mountain High Music Festival. And if anyone wants to check that out, it's mountainhighmusicfest.com. What is the best thing about being Dean Dillon? My wife. That's the best thing in my wife. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. She's just she's just a great just she's the exact opposite of me. She's a wakes up with a smile on her face every day raring to go. And just a wonderful, wonderful heart and soul. She's just a beautiful spirit. Do you have any dreams that you would like to make come true that have not yet? You know, not really. I've done it all. I, <laughs> I think I've achieved just about all I wanted to achieve as in as far as my writing goes. I've been so blessed in that area. I think the one thing that I'd like to do that I haven't I'm not, I'm getting there, but I haven't got to do yet is finish up my shop and be able to spend my days working on my cars. I love old cars. I just built myself a shop at my ranch in Gunnison, Colorado and, uh, looking forward to spending some time in that garage turning wrenches. For anyone who's listening into this interview, wherever they are in the country, what would you say to anyone who's tuned in? You know, love on one another. We don't have 
There's too much hate in this world. And we need to start looking at our our fellow man in a whole different way. We need to start looking at him, you know, with love in our eyes instead of hate and anger and fear. And just start loving on each other. You know, give them kudos. <laughs> Little thing, you know, cheer them up, pick them up when they're down instead of kicking them when they're down. The world would be a lot better place for it if we loved instead of hated. Well spoken. I'd like to invite everybody to visit the website. It's deandillon.com. My last question. How do you define Dean Dillon? Who is Dean Dillon at heart? Man, you know, I, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. Loves the Lord. And loves what I do. Like I said, I just love the heck out of my wife and my children. Likes to have a good time. Has things that I love to do, like like I said, working on my cars and stuff. But I just want to be the best guy I can be today, false and all, and uh, put one foot in front of the other and move on. I like that. Good talking to you, Paul. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thank you for all the songs. You're welcome. I'd like to thank a few people for making this interview possible. Cheryl Steinmeier. I'd like to thank Cole Clausen, the director of Tennessee Whiskey, The Dean Dillon Story. For information on that, you can check out facebook.com slash Story. You can also visit deandillon.com. Dillon is spelled D-I-L-L-O-N. And, of course, I'd like to thank Dean and Susie Dillon. For more information on the Paul Leslie Hour, you can always visit thepaulleslie.com. And, of course, there is our dial-in number. You can leave a message. And if I think it would be of interest to the listeners, I might play it back on the show. You can call 912-376-9529. If you enjoy the Paul Leslie Hour, Consider subscribing if you haven't already, and maybe if you like the show, you can give us a review and rate us on iTunes. Earlier in the show, you heard the instrumental song Guts and Bourbon by Kevin McLeod, and that's courtesy of Incompetech.com. Thanks for being here with me. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. Recorded, engineered, and mixed by Henry Jordan of Jordan Digital Studios. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>